thinking so much in regards to prayer. Uh, I've said before that church discipline was probably one of the least practiced doctrines in all the church. Uh, And I think there's a lot of factors involved in that. Uh, Sometimes it's because it has been practiced by leadership in ways that are oppressive uh, and self-willed and harsh. And so we've conditioned the people in many ways not to see it as a loving, correctional, um, you know, the love of a a father and mother for a child in some sense. Um, On the other hand, uh, I think it's not practiced very much because we are such an independent-minded people. Uh, We think in terms of you mind your own business and I'll mind mine. And we don't want anybody uh, weighing into our business. Uh, So so there's a lot of factors involved in, in that I think that generalization, but I think of those also of the Christian practices, perhaps prayer is the most challenging. It certainly is for me, and I don't mean challenging in terms of the discipline to do it. That's part of it, but I also mean the theology, the theology of prayer. How do I pray if I hold to certain theological truths. Uh, it reflects in the way that I pray. Uh, and sometimes you can, you can get a sense of where someone is theologically by listening to them pray. Uh, how do they word their prayers? How do they petition God? Uh, what do they say in their prayers? And it sometimes is reflective of where they are theologically and not always, uh, but sometimes it is. So that just, just thinking along those lines drew me tonight to Matthew chapter 7. Uh, we all know it as the Lord's Prayer. Uh, it's actually a, a model prayer. But I want to just share some thoughts uh, from those to that text tonight. So we'll read chapter 6 uh, beginning in verse 1 through verse 15. Uh, by the way, just pay attention to the phrase there, practicing your righteousness, he mentions here. And so I think in some ways this is a, uh, there is a practice of prayer. But it begins, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you pray, The reason, let me pause here. The reason I included verse 1 through 4 is because the language is so similar between giving and praying. And you'll notice that as I read from verse 5. But he says, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Here's this phrase again. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you... When you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. 
And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetitions as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. 14 and 15 is a sermon in and of itself. <clears throat> but I'm concentrating on verses, uh, really verses 5 uh, through 13. And as I mentioned there, prayer in, in the context of what he says in, in the whole chapter beginning in verse 1, uh, prayer is the, really the practice of righteousness. In other words, it's, it's not really optional. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean, I think, that <clears throat> if I'm righteous, I will pray. It is the practice of righteousness. There seems to be a righteousness in place that, that the practice of which results in prayer. So prayer is being produced by a certain righteousness. In chapter 5, verse 20, you get a little indication of this, but Jesus says to the, his disciples, For I say to you, unless, the, unless your righteousness surpasses or exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So there is a righteousness even exceeding theirs. And they were uh, frequently praying. As we learn in chapter 6, they prayed in wrong ways, but they were praying people. <clears throat> in fact, they took great pride and great pleasure in prayer. So, <clears throat> so there is a righteousness that we must have that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, or we will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so he relates that in chapter 6, verse 4 and 6. Uh, to giving and, and also in prayer in verse 6. So there is a righteousness involved. In, ver in chapter 5, verse 17, uh, Jesus says, I've not come to change the law or abolish the law, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. So the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees is the righteousness of Christ imputed to those who believe by faith. So if I'm going to practice that righteousness, Prayer is not optional. In fact, prayer might be a priority. <laughs> In fact, I think we probably minimize prayer when it ought to be one of the priority practices of the Christian life. We ought to do everything by prayer. Paul says, pray always in all things. So, so we treat prayer sometimes like a, an add-on at the beginning of the day, at the end of the day, perhaps after a meal, and that doesn't sound to me like it's priority to us as the practice of righteousness. So if we're Christians in whom the righteousness of Christ has been imputed, then the natural outflow and practice of that position or that, that condition ought to be prayer. It's not optional is my point. The practice of righteousness is 
a practice which flows from Christ's imputed righteousness. It is Christ's righteousness manifested in the obedient lives of those to whom it is imputed. I noted this, it is manifested in the context of our study tonight, but prayer, but not just prayer, but by prayer as Jesus instructs in chapter 6, 5 through 14. So, so prayer itself is the practice of righteousness, but not just any old prayer. Not just your view of praying, but praying as Jesus describes it in this chapter And that's really what I want to look at and some of the characteristics of the kind of prayer that would be honoring and would be truly the practice of righteousness. First and foremost, it is prayer. Uh, It is prayer without hypocrisy. In verse 5, he says that when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. If you go back to the first few verses, there were hypocrites involved in their giving as well. He says, when you give, don't do it like the hypocrites. So it is, it is in giving there, but in prayer here. Hypocritical, I think, in that prayer is to be directed to God. Yet the priority audience for the hypocrite seems to be men. In verse 5, he says that they may be seen of men. They want, if you think about it, the whole object of their praying is that they might gain the attention or the adoration or the praise or the respect or even the fear of those who hear them. Their their whole focus is men. Men. I remember when I was first called on to pray audibly in a congregational gathering and I, I remember struggling mightily to do that, not only because I'm just by disposition, I'm not one that felt comfortable doing that, but I was so super conscious of what people were thinking while I was praying. Uh, I'm thankful that God has in many ways delivered me from that because a lot of times I'm not even, even mindful of what you think while I'm praying. Uh, I'm praying to God. He's the, he's the object of my prayers. A prayer, hypocritical prayer is prayer that is directed towards any other aim other than God himself. Do not be like the hypocrites. Several things in this passage regarding the hypocrites. It says in that verse that they love to do it. They love this. So they love to to pray so that they might be heard of men. I don't think they love to pray as much as they love to be heard by men and all the fruit that comes from that. So I imagine they crafted eloquently their prayers and they took a posture that would sound commanding and authoritative and, and the people trembled and they thought, woe is the, is the righteousness of the Pharisees. And oh, they loved that. They loved it. That's hypocrisy. It's not praying at all. You remember the parable Jesus tells of the publican and the Pharisee and the, the, the Pharisee stands before the people and lifts his eyes to heaven and says, thank you, Lord, that I am not as other men. I, I tithe and I do these righteous things. And then, of course, the publican 
Didn't even so much as looked up to heaven, but he began to beat his breast, it says, and walked away and said, Oh, Lord, forgive me, the sinner, a sinner. And Jesus gets a commentary on the two, which do you think went home justified? Not the one who prayed and his target was men. It was the one whose prayer was to God, even if it was nothing more than forgive me, the sinner. So there's a hypocrisy in that they love, they love the adoration and the praise of men. Now, it's not wrong to stand and pray. There are many instances in Scripture of standing in prayer. Uh, I remember, you remember Solomon's great prayer of dedication. They brought out a podium and he stood up on the podium, but he also knelt in the same context in the same prayer. And I think in many ways the dedication was he wanted to stand to, to make the dedication so that all would hear and, and he's representing all of Israel in their dedication of themselves to God. But there is a place for kneeling and there's a place for being prostrate before the Lord, Isaiah being a good example of that. So I'm not saying that we should never stand and pray, but in their case it was hypocrisy because they were standing because they loved the praise of men, they were standing so that they might be above men, that they might draw the attentions of men. If they'd fallen to their knees and began to pray silently in their heart and weeping, they might have drawn the attention of men, but they wouldn't have drawn the adoration of men. But if they stand and they're above everyone and their voices projected outwardly and all can hear the eloquence of their prayer, oh, then they would be admired hypocrisy hypocrisy they do pray as I said perhaps eloquently perhaps even passionately perhaps they spend a lot of time crafting their prayers I remember one time talking to a gentleman who was a wonderful preacher of the word and he literally memorized every week uh, he would write out his sermon and memorize verbatim his sermon and he would craft every single word and it had wonderful effect. I wish I could do that. But I remember telling him I would be so caught up in my rote memorization that I would have no sense of the spirit at all if I preached that way. I imagine that these men were like that. They would craft their prayers and they would listen for signals in the, in the audience, and if they got some positive feedback, they would, yes, I remember that phrase. Or if they got some, if it didn't get the reaction they anticipated, perhaps they'd go back and craft it differently. They were all about putting together an eloquent prayer so that they might be heard by men and that they might be admired. Hypocrisy. Notice where they prayed as well. It doesn't say anything about their closet or their inner room. They love they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners. Ironically, places where what happens? People gather. Men are there. You can't get the admiration of men if you're not there where the men are. Whether they're in the synagogue where it ought to be sacred and holy at least or whether you're on the street corner and just passers-by going by. It doesn't matter to the prideful praying man because all he's aiming at is people and admiration for himself. That's hypocrisy. 
I honestly think you would be better to shut your mouth rather than pray with that motivation. Hypocrisy. Jesus says clearly in regards to prayer, do not pray like the hypocrites. This is how they pray. And I don't think he's being exhaustive here in their hypocrisy or in describing their hypocrisy. I think you could think through that and probably discover some. You could probably go through the Gospels and discover all sorts of manifestations of this prideful, self-righteous, men-directed prayer. It would strike me as interesting as well in verse 5 that in According to what they were designing or intending, uh, it was successful prayer. Hypocritical prayer is successful prayer. You may say, what? But Jesus says they have their reward in full. And that struck me. In other words, if that's your, if that's your aim and you work hard and craft and put together the eloquent prayer and you hear the people gasp and marvel at your wizardry and your brilliance, congratulations. You got exactly what you were aiming for. That's hypocritical prayer. But it's successful prayer in the sense that it obtains or it attains to the very thing that the one praying wanted, in this case, which was the praise of men. And I think at the very least, when we pray, whether publicly or whether in small groups or whether in a Sunday school class, these things ought to be, we ought to be reminded of these things. Who is my, who is my audience here? To whom is my prayer directed? If you want to talk to your brothers and sisters, speak to them. But don't, don't speak to them uh, vicariously by saying it to the Lord with the intentions that they hear it because your object is different. Your aim is very different. And it's not, I'm not saying we have to be legalistic about that. There's encouraging our brothers as we pray to the Lord and they hear those prayers. But, they, but, they, but the object of the prayer, the, the direction of the prayer is Godward. They have their reward in full. Their praying achieves their aim Men observed nothing more achieved than what was desired. Frightening that men would seek the praise of men by the naming of God, isn't it? I thought about how dangerous that is to, to call the name of God, in their case, Yahweh or Elohim, to, to, to assign that name, to address that holy name that he's about to call hallowed, with the express intentions of just using it to draw the attention of men. That is almost blasphemous, it would seem. Because now you've made God your servant to achieve your ends. And so do you think Jesus was satisfied with the hypocrite's prayer? Not at all. In fact, I think Jesus was deeply offended by such prayer. Notice as well in verse 7 that, and I want, I want to be careful about this because some of you will say, well, verse 9 through 13 is a formula. But my point is it's not formulated. It's a not non-formulated earnest prayer. 
verse 7, he says, And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetitions as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. And my emphasis there is the meaningless repetitions. Really, those are mechanisms meant to evoke the emotions of oneself, to agitate the spirit of a man, to produce deep feelings, which he then can later assign to divine intervention. In fact, I think that was one of the rebukes that Paul had for the Corinthian church is because coming out of their pagan background where the, where the priestess and the, and the representatives and adherents to that would work themselves up into some sort of heated emotional passion and to the point that they were speaking gibberish and, and just tongues as it were, indiscriminate tongues. And, and it was so revered that these pagan Corinthians, when they became Christians and they observed this tongues and these gifts of tongues, they started to emphasize that and claim that to themselves. And so it had the same sort of motivation. That's exactly what he means here. When you pray, don't pray as the hypocrites do and don't pray as the Gentiles do with meaningless repetitions designed to evoke in you some emotional stimulation that you can deceive yourself and make yourself think that God come to speak to you while you were praying. That's self-deception and that's self-manipulation. I worry about some, not all, but some of our praise music in our day uses a lot of repetition. There are chants almost, and, and I always get nervous when we do that too much. I'm not saying it can never be done or it's always sinful or wrong or dangerous, but I'm saying we need to be wise about that, that we're not through that. You ever watch any uh, uh, online of the Hillsong worship service? They will literally go on sometimes 30 minutes with the same refrain and just solemn music coming back and forth. And I always, I always think that a, a lost person could be moved by that. It's emotional. The music is strumming the chords of my emotion and I'm, I'm, I'm repeating and chanting this same mantra and I, to the point that I lose the significance of the very words and it just becomes part of the music and I'm being stirred by this and that's a dangerous thing. Jesus says, if you want to pray, don't pray that way. Don't employ mechanisms to make yourself feel some emotion. You know what I think one of the best instruments for prayer to, to provoke and to move our hearts to prayer is? Open the Bible. Put it before you. Read a verse. And when it goes over your head, say to yourself, I will not move from this verse, Lord, and until I understand, until I see light, until I behold a glimpse of your glory in this Word. So, oh God, give me a glimpse of this glory. You keep doing that and the Word of God then becomes manifest in your life and you begin to meditate upon that and God begins to open, open that passage of Scripture and you get a glimpse of the glory of God and then you begin to pray. Not with meaningless repetitions, and not with the audience being men. It's not to be formulaic in the sense that the prayer cannot be reduced to a mere formula. A system in which if every box is checked, the thing sought will be granted properly performed, it will make God our debtor. 
Uh, I've heard people, especially this prayer uh, and also in Psalm 23 are probably the most memorized prayers in all the Bible. And I've, I've heard it done at funerals before and, and sight with me and they would go through this prayer. And I often wondered how many people are just reciting a prayer by rote memory and, is, and you're missing the point of the model. You're just memorizing a prayer. Now you say, can I not pray this prayer? Absolutely. Absolutely. I would say pray this prayer frequently, but don't just cite it. Don't just recite it as some magical formula that you check all the boxes, include all the verses, and then move on into asking all God for all that you want as though that is some signature prayer that guarantees that God will hear what you say afterwards. I think it would be a wonderful devotion to pray through this model. And if you happen to memorize it, that's absolutely wonderful. I just noted in 9 through 13, the model prayer is just that. It is a model. It is not merely a prayer memorized and recited without heart and mind, which constrains God to hear and to act. In that sense, it's not formulaic it's not formulaic at all. It is a model prayer. I wrote when I was thinking about that, it is, I believe, a model in terms of the necessary themes for effectual God-honoring prayer. A model prayer, the adherence to which, though it be quoted verbatim or embraced in spirit and mind as both the foundation and the aim of our praying, enables faithful prayer. And I think that's what's involved here is there is, a, there is a theme involved. There are things that Jesus is pointing out that ought to be taken into consideration when you pray. This is the, this is the skeleton of your praying. And if you leave these out, then your praying is subject to go awry or, or get off track. It is a framework within which to offer up our prayers to God, whether they be prayer of praise or petition. And I think that's what is meant by this being a model prayer. Notice in verse 8, uh, it is to be a prayer offered in submission or submissive, or I was going to use the word subjective, but sometimes that has negative connotations. But it is a submissive prayer. Verse 8, when he says, do not be like them, he says something I think that we sometimes overlook. When he says, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. And see, there's where the theology of prayer becomes challenging. Well, if he does, why ask? And, and you can find yourself slipping into that. Uh, I think your asking might be the instrument by which he answers the prayer for what you need. So I'm not suggesting that you need not ask, and neither does Jesus suggest that. But it is a prayer that acknowledges God's omniscience. He knows what you need before you ask. Although we are exhorted, make your requests be made known to God. In the fullest expression, we are really not informing God of our needs as though it was somehow unknown to him. He recognizes, he knows your needs. It also recognizes prayer like this, recognizes that our request 
may not perfectly align with God's special or specific will or purpose in every single circumstances. It's a praying that takes that into account. That's the model. Pray this way. When you pray, take into account that God knows every need before you ever ask him and take into account that you are a fallible man and what you perceive to be your needs may not be aligned perfectly with his will and his purposes. So yield some space for that. Allow for the reality that God is omniscient and knows all things and operates according to the counsel of his own will. It is that we pray to a God whose thoughts and ways are far above our own and who is infinitely wise and knows how to give good gifts to his children. So I think when Jesus says, when you pray, pray this way, I think that's what he means. Enter into your inner room, into your prayer closet, mindful of this reality. It will shape your prayers. In other words, you'll find that you don't rush in and start listing out all your expectations of God. There will be a humility in your prayer that recognizes that although I I understand this to be a need in my life or the need of someone else, I yield in this moment, Father, and I offer up this request as as I have been commanded. But I recognize even in doing so that your will and purposes are far greater and far far more to the good of the one for whom I am praying. So I am open and willing to yield in that moment. Pray that way. Pray with that consideration and with that in mind. Notice in verse 9 as well, this kind of prayer is a prayer directed to God, he says, as our Father. It is the prayer of a child of God. Be mindful of that. When we pray, be mindful of it and all that has been accomplished to make that so. I just wrote down a few things just racing through that in my mind. But the life, death, and resurrection of the Son of God. The propitiatory, substitutionary death of Christ on our behalf. Our union with Christ. The Spirit that dwells in us by which we cry, Abba, Daddy, Father. The love. You hear me quote it all the time. 1 John 1, 3, or 1 John 3, 1 through 3. Behold what manner of love he has bestowed on us that we would be called the children of God. Think about in terms of the condensation or the condensation, the condescension of the incarnation. This holy God is our Father. Be mindful of that when we pray. Sometimes I appreciate a reverence that recognizes the transcendence of God, but but don't lose sight of our intimacy with God through the sufferings and the sacrifice of Christ. It is your Father that you're appealing to. It is your Father that you are recognizing. It is your Father who you are acknowledging. Yes, He is God. He is all God, eternally God, infinitely God, but He relates to us as believers as our Father. At the same time that we're called to direct Him, uh, to address Him as Father here and to recognize and, and let this shape our prayers with this mindset. Think in terms of what we were before that. We were enemies of God. We, we abided under the wrath of God. 
In fact, the scriptures say we weren't children of God. We were children of the wrath, children of wrath. But in Christ, we have become children of God. So, yes, as according to the scriptures, come boldly to the throne because your father is seated upon that throne. But beware, because in verse 9, he directs our attention to another aspect of this because he says, your father who is in heaven. So now he's speaking of transcendence. Father is condescension coming down to us. Who shall go up into heaven to bring him down? And who shall go down to bring him up? We can't pull God down to us. He condescends to us in the incarnation of the Son. But he does not cease in that moment to be the transcendent God. So that ought to balance an over-familiarity to him. He's not the man upstairs. He's not the big guy. He's God. He is your father, yes, but it ought to humble us and silence us to realize how that relationship was brought into being. And it is, he didn't cease to be infinitely holy and majestic when he became our father. He is still the transcendent God. Your father is in heaven. He's in heaven. And that ought to shape our prayers. I think that would diminish frivolous prayers. I think what it does for me is it provokes thoughtfulness in what I'm about to pray. And what I'm about to pray, does it take into account the realization that God is omniscient and knows every need that I have and every need of every person in the universe? Does it shape my prayer to realize that the God against whom I was once a rebel and an enemy has by his own sacrifice brought me into fellowship with him as a child? Does it, does it weigh into my praying to think that though he is my father, he is in heaven and transcendent and his thoughts are above my thoughts and his ways beyond my own ways? Does it weigh into how I'm praying to take these things into account? Or do we just tack on the address at the beginning? Father, thank you for this day. Do I really recognize that I'm speaking there to a transcendent God? It is no small thing to address God. You remember the experience of the Israelites in Mount Horeb. God sent Moses, come to the mount, I will meet you there. And they come up to the mount and the mount is all covered with smoke and fire and there's rumblings and finally the voice of God comes from the mountain and the people terrified. So much so that they tell Moses, don't ever let that happen again. From now on, you go up there, you find out what he says and you come and tell us because we can't, we can't endure the holiness and the majesty and the power of this almighty God. And God grants them that mercy. But even when Moses comes down, his face is glowing. He has to put a veil on it, by the way, so that they wouldn't see it fading away. Not so that they wouldn't see it. So they won't see it going away. Because the glory of God never goes away. So it is a transcendent God that we pray to. And we remember that we were delivered from hostility against God and being his enemies and under his wrath to become his children. But yes, he is still transcendent. I'll close with this and then maybe come back Sunday night to conclude this. But this kind of prayer 
is directed to the one whose name is, is or is to be hallowed. Verse 9. Listen, uh, listen real quickly to Isaiah 6. You don't have to turn there, but listen to Isaiah's experience. In the year of the king of Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. I saw him sitting on a throne and lofty and exalted. Let me just insert here. Transcendent. I saw him. And the train of his robe was filling the temple and seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face and with two his feet. And with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out. And while the temple was filling with smoke, what did Isaiah do? Then I said, woe is me, for I am undone. I've shared before, I did a word study on the ruin there. I am ruined, undone. And the word had to do with weaving. And it was as if you... I always use this analogy. We had Berber carpet in our house, and we first moved in. Hope was vacuuming with the beater bar, and it caught a snag of that, and it went. <laughs> and we had this big long strip right down the middle of our brand new carpet. That's the imagery. In the presence of this God, Isaiah says, "I am being taken apart, taken apart, dismantled." That's. That has to be taken into account. Yes, you better be glad and I am rejoice that I relate to him as his child or else I would be utterly ruined in the presence of this God. Yes, he is my father, but he is transcended. Isaiah says, I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So it's to be directed prayer. This prayer is to be reminded that we are directing this prayer to the one whose name is hallowed. That word simply means set apart utterly as holy, sacred, consecrated. That is the God you're praying to. That's why I say phrases like the man upstairs and big guy are, are deeply alarming for me. If I hear someone say that, I, I cringe in my spirit. No, no. Don't, don't attempt to diminish at all his name. You, you and I can't comprehend the greatness of his name, much less dare to diminish it with such diminutive terms as big guy and the man upstairs and others that I've heard. His name is holy. This could be both Jesus' declaration. Pray this way. Holy is your name. Be mindful of that. Remind yourself that as a declaration. He is holy. Or he could mean that in my praying and in my living that I strive to hallow or to set apart his name as holy. Which would guide, I think, significantly how I prayed. Because I'm praying in ways that are appropriate to the greatness and the majesty and the holiness of God. I'm not saying that I wouldn't be bring small things. Yes, bring small things. I, 
I shared with some folks, I might have shared here, but uh, the kids were, they were flying in a little model airplane for Harrison, uh, and they decided to go over to the soccer complex and fly. It was more room, and you wouldn't get it caught up in anything. Well, it was pretty windy that day, and somehow it flew over and got caught about 80 to 90 feet up in this massive tree. And so we tried to get it down and couldn't do that. So I come up with the brilliant idea of barring Ryland's bow, and I was going to tie a piece of construction twine to the arrow, shoot the arrow over the limb, and then pull that string up, pull a heavier rope up with that string, and then shake it like crazy, and the airplane fall out and rescue uh, his airplane. Well, I went, the clock park was closed, so I had to hike down through from Cozumel's all the way down into the soccer complex. But when I got out of the truck, to head that way, by the way, there's a disc golf course there, and here comes this some nut in a hoodie uh, with a bow and arrow walking across the disc golf course, and all these guys out there looking at me like crazy. I'm, 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 not, gonna, I'm not here to hurt anybody. But anyway, when I got out of the truck, it was windy. I knew this was going to be a pretty iffy task. I didn't know if I could even do it, and I just sincerely but rather lightheartedly shut my door and said, Lord, I could sure use some help today. And I made my way down there. It must have been a three-mile circuit the way I finally got there. And when I got down there and found the exact tree and looked up, the plane wasn't in there. And I thought, well, maybe it fell out and somebody got it. So I began to look around, and it fell, and it was right at the base of that tree. And I thought to myself, sometimes I think God answers prayers like that as a wink, as to say, I got this. There's nothing too small. There's nothing too insignificant. He, he affirmed my faith. I, I'm convinced, I don't know this, but I'm convinced that before the moment I breathed that prayer, a gust of wind blew that thing out at that moment. It didn't happen last night, the day before. It happened right upon the instrument of that particular prayer request. So I'm not saying that being mindful of the greatness and majesty and holiness of God should discourage small things and even in our own sight. Just know who it is that's answering it. The God who sent the burst of wind is the God who controls the wind. The one who brought the wind into existence. The one who can say to the seas, be thou still. And it becomes still. So you can pray simple, small prayers. Just know who you're praying to. That's what I think the model prayer is. His name is holy. And it is to be made hallowed when we pray. It is to be remembered. We are to be mindful in prayer of his holiness. And I'll close with this. Just a statement I made thinking through that. But how humbled. How humbled. How silent. How honest and earnest would be our prayer if we but kept this in mind, the infinite glory and holiness of the one to whom we're praying. Man, I could, I could, I was thinking I could, I could edit my prayers in such a way and direct them and pray consistent with God's word, his truth, the display of his own glory, even, even desiring the healing of a loved one. Yes, 
I want my loved one with me, but far greater still in my motivation is that all would the manifestation of your glory be evident in the healing of their body. And then trust that perhaps he may choose to manifest it that way or he may manifest it by bringing them home to himself with assurance and with great calm in the midst of death's dark shadows. It is God. So this is, that's my introduction to the Lord's Prayer. Uh, I'll give you a little head start. I've shared this before. We had a professor who preached a whole sermon and a wonderful message on the phrase, give us this day our daily bread. Uh, just one verse in this prayer. And he made the point, it's daily bread. You don't get today's bread tomorrow. And you don't get it yesterday. You get today's bread today. Now, tomorrow you can ask for tomorrow's bread, but it won't be today's bread. You missed today's bread. Give us this day our daily bread. And that means I better pray it tomorrow or I'll miss tomorrow's daily bread. He gives it to us daily. <laughs> daily, just like the manna. They got up every morning and the manna was there. And they went out and gathered. And if they didn't gather, it'd melt away. And he'd send enough so that they could honor the Sabbath and they'd go out and gather twice as much. But if you didn't go out and get it, whenever he sent it each day... And you remember they tried to hoard it up and it wouldn't work. It wouldn't work. It went bad. It's daily bread. It's daily bread. So a lot to be said in this model. Stand with me. Thank you for your, your time this night. Father, with these things in mind, sometimes we're prone to just be quiet in your presence. And, and Father, I'm convinced that that's a good thing. And sometimes we need to deliberately approach our times of prayer with no intentions of saying anything but of just listening. And so, Father, I pray that that will be a part of our prayer lives as well. And, Father, when we do, after great consideration and meditation upon your word and reflection upon who you are, when we bring our words, Father, help us not to be hypocritical. Help us not to be like the Gentiles and just repeat vain repetitions while we think of something else to say. And Father, certainly help us not to be those hypocrite prayers who craft the entirety of their speaking for the audience of men. So when we pray in the morning or this evening, when we begin to lie down and rest for the evening. Father, I pray these things will be in mind, be in our minds and in our hearts, that this will become a model for us as we come to you in prayer. What a great privilege it is. Father, thank you for the new birth uh, without which we would be your enemies and we would be abiding even in this moment under your wrath, but we have been delivered from that in Christ and we can come to you as our Father. Bless those who've come tonight, Father. I pray that you might draw our hearts each day, each week, moment by moment, closer to you. Lord, thank you for the, for the challenges we face in life. Lord, they are difficult, and in the midst of them, we are, we are grieved and sometimes discouraged and sometimes even feeling overwhelmed. But in the grand scheme of things, Father, these things by your gracious hand are necessary for that good work that you are completing in each of us. And so, Father, help us just to be found faithful uh, to follow you through whatever comes. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.